What's up, Stitches? It's me, your gal, Isabella Rosner, and the time has come for Episode 7 of Season 3 of So What? Today's episode is an interview unlike any previous So What? episode. It's about historic textiles and pests, the creepy-crawly bugs and animals that are trying to destroy our precious needlework. The conversation is with Joel Voron, the Integrated Pest Management Specialist at Colonial Williamsburg. He's one of the only people in the world who does what he does. How cool is that? He has a super unique outlook on the preservation and conservation of historic needlework that I'm excited for you all to hear. Before we talk to Joel about textiles and pest protection, though, social media spiel time. As you know well at this point, you can check out images and sources discussed in this episode on So What's social media pages at So What Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And we have a website too, which is SoWhatPodcast.com. Go check those out and bask in all things historic needlework and be impressed by the fact that my social media spiel is so succinct now. 52 or whatever episodes in and we finally nailed it. Okay, now time to introduce Joel. Joel Veron is, as I mentioned a moment ago, the Integrated Pest Management Specialist at Colonial Williamsburg in Williamsburg, Virginia. He looks after all of the organization's historic sites and properties, as well as the many historic objects in the Foundation's museum collections, to ensure that everything is free from pests like animals and insects. His remit, as you can imagine, includes a lot of historic and contemporary textiles. That's because not only does he look after the museum's historic textile collection, he also has to look at the historic properties, contemporary renditions of historic textiles. So things like curtains and blankets and all that sort of stuff, which has been made in this century to look like 18th century stuff. Anyway, the Museums of Colonial Williamsburg Facebook page recently shared a post all about Joel and his work, which was a really great summary that I'm going to share with you all to explain exactly what Joel does. The post reads, quote, While most people would prefer not to think about pests, they are of great concern to hashtag CW conservation staff, especially Joel, our integrated pest management specialist. Pests can damage or even destroy a museum object in a very short time frame. There are many factors that are involved in preventing pest damage to our collections, such as storing and displaying objects in an environment with controlled temperature and humidity. Regular environmental monitoring prevents pests from overpopulating, as most pests need higher humidity to thrive. Regular deep cleaning of collection spaces removes any unseen eggs or food sources. Consistent monitoring reveals changes to a structure that could allow pests to gain access. These measures make for a successful integrated pest management program with a low chemical footprint. Objects are inspected for pests when acquired, moved, or relocated from one area of the foundation to another. We also evaluate objects for pest risk susceptibility. Textiles, paper, or wood are more susceptible to pest damage than, say, a ceramic urn. Assessing susceptibility allows us to concentrate our efforts on the more pest-sensitive objects. 
Just like we can get pests in our homes from time to time, so can museums. Being proactive and denying pests their preferred environment is the best defense. End quote. So clearly, Joel has a unique understanding and view of historic textiles. I don't know about you all, but I don't often think about pest risks with historic needlework. But given how much little critters love fabric, I should, and I am actively trying to change that now. So thank you, Joel, for the wake-up call and all the knowledge. Love to think about textiles from new and more unusual viewpoints, am I right? Yes, I am right. I know you agree. I don't hear your voices saying yes, but I know that's what you're saying. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Hi, Joel. Thank you so much for being here today. I am excited to talk to you because I don't know exactly what you do. And all I know is that I'm incredibly grateful for your work and that I and everybody else who kind of works with or studies or loves historic textiles, we owe you a lot. So thank you. Excellent. Well, thank you for having me here. What exactly do you do and how did you come to do it? So I am the Integrated Pest Management Specialist for uh, the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. My responsibilities include uh, 690 structures. Oh my God. Uh, So uh, yeah, it sounds kind of scary. Yeah. Some of the structures are very tiny, such Mm -hmm. as... uh, wells or uh, facility buildings back in the day. The biggest responsibilities would be termites, um, powder post beetles, and textile pests uh, in exhibit spaces and stuff like that. So um, I'm a busy man. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the other uh, big responsibilities that I would have would be checking um, objects that come in and out of uh, the collections. So that's that's very interesting. I get to see um, some very interesting artifacts and uh, museum pieces. Today, for instance, we had a sampler that came in. Curator called me. She said, I think we should freeze it. Uh, I inspected it, uh, did a cold treatment on it. So that's uh, actually cooking in the freezer for the next three days. So, you know, things like that, that's part of my day. How I came about uh, this position was I actually started doing, uh, I was a professional gardener here, uh, realized that all of my um, joints probably could not stand another 15 years before I would retire. Mm. So I started studying integrated pest management at Purdue University online, thinking that I would go and work probably for a school system. For those of you that don't know what integrated pest management is, managing pests with the least amount of chemicals and using common sense approaches and tactics to exclude pests in the first place and actually solve the problem, not just dumping chemicals all around. Um, so, you know, most people think pests, you would automatically just spray stuff, which is uh, that's something we would not want to do around collection pieces. Mm. Um, you know, that we're guarding for perpetuity and, you know, final storage spaces and in museum exhibits. Uh, About two weeks before I was about to graduate from Purdue University, I happened to check the job listings here and noticed that this position was opening up. And so I was able to switch from one department to the other. Oh my God, how convenient. Destiny. Yeah. Yeah. So I went from being outside to 
being inside mostly, um, unless I'm doing termite inspections, which that involves a lot of outside work. What does pest management and control involve when it comes to needlework specifically and textiles more generally? I would say with uh, fine needlework, you would want to know uh, what the background fabric is. You know, cotton, not so much an issue. If you're looking at uh, silk or wool, that's uh, has uh, keratin in it, and that's what mm-hmm. clothes moss and carpet beetles, which are the two most important critters for textiles, um, those would contain keratin. Um, anything with keratinaceous uh, properties, they can actually, those fibers are perfect for closed moss and carpet beetles to ingest. So it's good to know what type of your base fabric is. Um, I have seen issues with things on cotton or linen, which bugs usually don't go after. Um, but if they do have human hair embedded or pet hair, um, then you still kind of need to be careful. Wow. I never had any idea about that. That is so interesting. Yeah. So, you know, just because something isn't keratinaceous, if it comes from, you know, the crazy cat lady's house, and it has cat hair embedded in it, you should probably take a finer look and, uh, you know, have it professionally vacuumed and cleaned. There are also cold treatments um, that can be done if, you know, you definitely see insect activity um, or frass, which would be the, the business part that comes out of clothes moths or carpet beetles. Um, oh, oh, if that's detected on an object or uh, on your needlework or textiles, then you would most definitely want to freeze it. Basically, uh, what a cold treatment would be would be professionally, it would be minus 32 degrees for 72 hours. And then you would um, take the, the object out uh, of the freezer and you would let it acclimate for 24 hours. Um, and the objects need to be frozen and uh uh, wrapped before they're frozen in a polyethylene, uh, a good quality bag and sealed really well. That way, when they're brought back out into your um, environment, they do not condensate on the object. They condensate on the plastic bag, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And so does that mean if somebody like uh, has a piece of historic needlework and they want to protect it or even modern needlework, but I guess when it comes to, well, I guess with like with pests, they don't really care if it's historic or modern, do they? That's my first They question. do not care. So like, do you recommend people put stuff in a high quality bag and put it in the freezer themselves? Or is that like a leave it to the professionals thing? It depends. If you have, if you have a, a home freezer, that's a, that like, let's say you have a home chest freezer that's minus five degrees, like an ice cream freezer or mm. a really good home yeah chest freezer. Usually it wouldn't work with a refrigerator freezer. They usually don't get cold enough. You can do what's called cycling with a um, household freezer, chest freezer, or or a large upright freezer, which would be, um, you would leave it in much longer than we do in our professional freezer. You would put it in for two weeks, take it out for a week, put it back in for another two weeks. So it's kind of time consuming, but in order to kill all the life stages um, of the pests, you would have to do what's called cycling. 
if your freezer is not pharmaceutical grade at minus 32 degrees. So it can be done. Um, I would go online and get very good specifics if you decide you're going to try it at home. Because mm-hmm. uh, I'm really only familiar with, um, you know, doing it at, you know, the 72-24 cold treatment with a professional freezer. Gotcha. The other mm-hmm. things that, um, you know, people could do, I, I would say, would be um, prevention, of course. Preventing pests from mm-hmm. getting to your textiles in the first place is obviously better, you know, than having to be reactive once they're infested. Um, and, you know, that involves, uh, you know, checking on items, not leaving them in the dark for three years. Uh, um, right. We would call that disturbing <laughs> objects, which is where you go and check on stuff and, you know, things that aren't disturbed and are quiet and are dark are perfect for pests. Whereas if, it, you know, you're checking on something every three months, um, you know, moving stuff around a little bit, looking at it, that always helps. And then that way, if there is pest activity, you can catch it before it's, you know, detrimental and you've lost your uh, textile piece. Mm. Um, you know, exclusion is also a really good idea about, you know, how you're storing things. Are you storing things properly or, you know, are they in a cardboard box in the corner of the garage? That's a pretty, you know, loose space. So, it, you know, if you've got stuff framed, if you have your needle needlework framed and, you know, high quality framing and it's on the wall, you're probably okay, but you know, if you're storing it in the you know tractor shed <laughs> out back, yikes, be a little worried. That makes sense. <laughs> There's just so much I hadn't thought about. My own museum experience is more like I know about the the fear of of the bugs. What are they? The clothes moths, silverfish? Is that a, is that a thing? Silverfish is a thing, and if you have paper on the backs, if your frame needlework is uh, has that lovely brown craft paper on the back, mm-hmm, classic, like, yeah. like to use, then you could end up with actual silverfish grazing on the back side of your uh, needlework if it's not padded real well. Something I never realized, but makes so much sense. It just never crossed my mind is that each material has its own pest problems right absolutely yes each each material has its own type of pests and um you know museum world every object has its type of pests or risks right so um you know if there's a ceramic urn um i'm not too worried about that and i don't spend a whole lot of time um worrying about that because nothing's going to eat a ceramic urn whereas Textiles are my largest concern. Textiles mm-hmm. and structures and wood, you know. So, you know, nothing's going to eat a, you know, silver punch bowl. Right. Uh, but, but um, you know, textiles definitely. And then, you know, like, you know, objects that have multiple types of media, you know, whether it be framing or housing or whatever, you have to think about, you know, what could eat this. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So I guess like a like a framed sampler or a framed piece of needlework is a surprisingly high stakes game, isn't it? I hadn't it is that. because yes, absolutely. Because then you've got wood, you know, so then you've got to worry about powder post beetle. Does it have dry wood? Does it have carpet beetle eggs on it? Does it have 
Closed moths, so sure. The more things you pile on an object, uh, the more pestiferous there would be. Wow. It's honestly so interesting, and it is putting a deep amount of fear in me. But it's, <laughs> I, I think it's, it's clearly better to know the risks than to risk possible damage to things. Sure, absolutely. Uh, one of the other big um, issues with textiles and pests that people don't think about are rodents. Um, oh, no, I was going to ask about that, but I was like, surely not. No, no, no. Yes, yeah? absolutely. So um, in particular, um, mice in general, when a female mouse gets pregnant immediately in, and it's instinctively, they seek out cotton <gasps> What for nesting materials. Like the second they get pregnant, they seek out cotton. So if you've ever noticed, if you've ever lived in a place where you've noticed mice and they've chewed up paper towels and toilet paper, that's because there's cotton actually in that. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. The number of things I am learning today, that is my new favorite fun fact. That is not actually fun, but is a fact. That is so interesting. Wow. Yeah, so just the smell of cotton can attract rodents to objects. So well, it's better to use horrifying. free tissue paper. Better to use acid-free tissue paper to, to wrap your important things in than uh, a, a cotton fabric, for sure. Does acid-free, like, repel them more or no? It doesn't. The acid-free yeah. acid <laughs> part is, is more about uh, it aging and transferring stains from the paper onto the object. But right. That cotton, will, cotton will attract female um, mice and rodents to the point where you can actually um, you can put a cotton ball in a mouse trap and you can catch a pregnant mouse before she even gives birth. Well, that is insane, and I appreciate the knowledge, but also I'm horrified. Wow, <laughs> of, it is kind of crazy. It is that is crazy, and the stuff yeah. that you do because. I mean, you are the only person I've worked at several museums and um, you're the only like pest person that I've ever come across. Is it normal for large scale institutions to have somebody who is keeping on top of the pests or is that something that like conservators usually keep track of? That's a really good question. In most museums, um, pest management, uh, Trap, trapping, monitoring, uh, stuff like that is usually carried out by curators or conservators, usually in their own, within their very own spaces. So it's kind of all divvied up. Um, you know, things get missed um, a lot when that happens, but that's usually very common in most institutions. Um, larger institutions are just now starting to catch on. Um, and Colonial Williamsburg uh, was actually one of the very first places to have a full-time uh, museum pest management person. Uh, Congrats to you all, to them and to you. Wow. Yeah, so, so there's really only three people that do it in the entire world. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah so uh, I, me being one of them. You are so cool. What the heck? That's amazing. Yeah, and then uh, the Museum of Natural History in London has a IPM uh -huh. person, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York uh, just within the past 
20 months, um, they finally have gotten a full-time integrated pest management person. Um, I'm the only one who does actual, can do treatments. So I have a license, three licenses from the state of Virginia, and I am a certified master termite technician according to the state of South Carolina. <laughs> that is so cool. I got, yeah, I got a master termite technician. Master termite um, technician. Wow. That is amazing. I did not realize that you are, that your position is so rare. Congrats on being extremely cool. It's, it's pretty niche. It is. Did you have to take any special measures to protect the textiles during the lockdown, the pandemic lockdown in the U.S.? Because I imagine you couldn't get into the collection and check in on things during that time, right? I, I was very fortunate. Um, historic preservation uh, was deemed essential. Ah, okay. And, and I work with historic preservation team a lot. Um, so I came to work um, every single day. And Whoa, pandemic yeah. who? I mean, I guess you're, yes. dealing with, you're not, you're dealing with bugs. You're not dealing with other people. So that does make sense. Right. Uh, Historic Preservation came up with a plan that we would have teams of people uh, to go th throughout the village and check on buildings um, since they would be unoccupied for such, you know, what we thought would be a month. So yeah, that, it was a, it was an interesting time, uh, you know, to walk around with buckets of keys down the street and just be you and your teammate. We had two people on a team and, um, you know, buildings initially we were checking buildings twice a day. It was an interesting time frame, and that, that continued for a number of months. <laughs> wow. 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 It does make sense based on what you were saying about disturbing objects you know you can't leave mm -hmm. something in the dark for three years i would right. envision that leaving these historic properties many of which have uh lots of textiles going on bed linens sort that sure. sort of stuff curtains i would imagine that disturb not disturbing them for many months would probably lead to problems is that a correct assumption that is a correct assumption there were some sites um where we actually pulled textiles out of, uh, you know, we're like, look, if this is going to be empty for a while, um, let's pull this stuff out, bring it in, get it into conservators, get it clean, get it frozen, keep it in final storage until we know we're going to open up the space again. Because um, there were some buildings where um, we didn't open the second floor because there was no way to do flow with people. Yeah, that makes sense. Separated. Um, and so in those spaces, we still have some spaces where the second floors are not open um, because of, you know, egress issues with yeah. COVID-19 exposure and stuff like that. But yeah, we talked, uh, it was a good time. Um, you know, a lot of people during COVID remodeled their house and redecorated. And um, we kind of did the same thing here. We're like, well, we've got a quiet time where no one's in the way. Um, and we were able to paint a lot of stuff, redo a lot of stuff, um, bring things in, you know, bring objects, collection pieces in from the village to have them looked at, mm. um, clean, stored. Some were returned, but uh, it gave us a, a good, good space to take care of things. A nice silver lining. 
it's good. It, it Everything was. gets a little, <laughs> a little zhuzh, a little, it, yeah, a little amazing. Got a uh, fresh coat of paint on a lot of stuff oh. now. Love and that. And really bugs, really bugs really be nice. gone. Bugs be gone. Bugs, bugs be gone. Yeah, it gave me time to you know do a lot of inspections too, which was nice. That's really good. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't I considered like how uh, the existence of people in all these spaces, whether they're museum storage or the historic area, it probably the presence of people constantly probably really does um, keep critters at bay. It, it does. It helps. You know, you're turning lights on, you're opening blinds. Um, yeah, most most things don't like to be too close to people unless mm. they eat, unless they feed on people. They usually don't like to be close to people. (laughs) What is your favorite needleworked object? And I realize that you work with tons of stuff, not necessarily even historic objects, but I'm sure you have a lot of experience just seeing, checking in on Colonial Williamsburg's historic textiles. So I'd love to hear what your favorite is, if you could pick one. So if I had to pick one, there's a sampler that was done by uh, Sarah Airline Hughes. Mm-hmm. And it's a really cute, um, you know, she's got the, the al- you know, typical alphabet at the top and the numbers. Um, but uh, she did this lovely saying in Needlepoint. And uh, I'll just read it real quick. It says, yeah, please. Beauty soon grown familiar to the eye. Virtue alone has charms that never die. Wrought by Sarah Arlene Hughes, age six years old, 1813. And whenever I saw that, I was so impressed that a six-year-old did this needle needlework. Um, and that this survived from 1813. And I was standing there looking at it. Um, and uh, that was a... The saying uh, comes from William Congrave. What an incredibly charming verse. It's it's so, you know, it's talking about beauty and virtue. It's so like um, baseline teaching somebody about like values, desirable values. You know, it, I it's like sure. it's like she's too young to stitch these verses about how we're all going to die. And she's too young to stitch <laughs> verses about how Jesus Christ is the savior or whatever, all this stuff that is, uh-huh. you know, all over these other samplers. She is, it's like just this gentle, you know, delightfully easily rhyming verse. What a cutie. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe she's, um, I believe this is a Virginia piece actually. <gasps> oh my God. Uh-huh. Local. Wow. 208 years ago. A six-year-old stitched that and it fought off any opportunity for pests. And here it is to tell the tale. Yeah. So it's uh, the quote was from William Congreve, The Morning Bride. Thank you. A a play that he had written in, you know, 16 something. And here she is quoting it in 1813. You want to hear some interesting information? Sure. I just found it really quickly. I think somebody, it's from the person who donated it to CW. Okay. Thank you. So uh, Sarah, it looks like, poor little Sarah, was born in 1807, which obviously makes sense. Um, uh-huh. Lived to only 18 years old. 
What? That's oh. quite sad. Uh, I'm assuming that was kind of common back then. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, it's terrible. Really sucks for her, but honestly, incredibly, <laughs> like, just like lovely to have a memorial to her with her very short life. It's lovely that something that sort of, that something survives of her and that we can talk about her, you know, more than 200 years later, even though she didn't even, you know, she barely reached adulthood. Who would have thought as a six-year-old, you would be creating something that would last on forever. Yeah. I I think about that. In needlework. That's, that's really incredible. I think about that a lot with the needlework I look at. I oftentimes wonder what these girls and young women thought about what they were making. Like, I, I guess I wonder um, if they thought or considered the legacy of these pieces, if they ever thought about um, if the pieces would die with them, if they, you know, would be passed along for generation from generation to generation, if they would be in a museum 200 years later. I always think about what sure. they thought as they were stitching. That's Good it. for her. That's an excellent object. Also, object made by the youngest person on this podcast yet. So thank you. Is there anything that we have not talked about that you want to talk about? If, if anyone, you know, is worried about, uh, you know, any textile pests or any kind of museum pests that they may have on any collections, I know sometimes people have um, multiple types of collections, mm-hmm. usually collectors. You know, sometimes they stick with one thing. Sometimes they have, you know, different medias. But um, if you ever need any uh, pest information, um, I'm also a contributor on museumpest.net. Oh, you know, uh, no, that was a thing. Excellent. Yeah. So that's museumpest, one word, dot. Mm-hmm. That's a product of the Museum Pest Working Group, which was formerly the IPM Working Group, but uh, we got sick of explaining what IPM meant. <laughs> so we all came up with the idea to change our name. And uh, we're a resource um, that's was developed by museum professionals from around the world. Uh, we meet once a year for three days and we update best practices on controlling pests in museums. Um, but there's also really good prevention and solution ideas that can be made um, even in a home setting, you know, exclusion, you know, checking door sweeps to make sure bugs just aren't walking in underneath your door because mm-hmm. doors usually rot away at some point and uh, you know just it, it's a really neat uh, website um, if you're looking for past and critter stuff how cool I am going to link it across all the so at social media because that is really a that's a really generous and unexpected piece of knowledge that I think that most people, don't even know that's out there. So, I mean, maybe the people in the know know that it's out there, but what a really great database of information for people who are lucky enough to have, you know, historic and contemporary pieces of textile that want to protect their stuff. So thanks. Sure. sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I think institutions are catching on, but, um, you know, anyone can log in, even private collectors. Uh, so check it out. Will do. How rad. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I'm really, you, you taught me an incredible amount. I am still thinking about the pregnant rat situation. So thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cotton. Hide your cotton. 
What a note to end the interview on, right? <laughs> like, that's funny to me, the whole, like, mouse pregnancy cotton thing, but also I'm scared. We recorded this interview a few months ago, and I still truly cannot stop thinking about the pregnant mouse-slash-rat-loving-cotton situation. It's so, like, spooky, but also weirdly makes sense to me. For some reason, I'm not surprised by it, and that is the scariest thing of all. But it is, despite all the spookiness, very informative and really fascinating. You'll probably have noticed that in the interview, I didn't ask Joel what he thinks about the role of needlework in today's world. That's because Joel is not a needlework specialist, and our time was much better spent talking and thinking about pest issues more generally. Thinking about all those pests really gives me an even deeper appreciation for the historic textiles that survive, as they've survived decades and centuries of possible pests to get here. I do think about other forces that have resulted in the loss of needlework over the centuries, things like fire, war, flooding, sickness, and various sorts of destruction, but loss at the hands, or rather little claws and teeth and tiny poops of critters, is something I often forget about. I'm not sure what to say about that other than that nature is powerful. You can frame and store your needlework and pests might still find it. But luckily for you and me and all of us, if you're aware and cautious, your textiles, past and present, should be just fine. Just keep those keratinaceous, great word, fibers, that keratin sort of stuff, that silk and that wool, protected. Who knew that what it all comes down to is tiny bugs wanting to munch on human and animal hair? Not me. I don't have a larger thematic conclusion for this episode because I don't really think it needs one. After all, this whole episode is about the practicalities of preventing pest problems. Look at the alliteration right there. That was some good alliteration. Anyway, it's about how to protect and cherish needlework on scales as large as museum collections and as small and personal as the objects you have up in your attic. It's all about preserving those pieces so they last for many more centuries to come. So yeah, that's what I got. And that's it from me this week. Thank you for listening, as always. And thank you to Joel for the super insightful interview. I'm really grateful to have gotten this unique insight into a part of the world of historic needlework I spend admittedly too little time thinking about. But that's all changing now. Now go out and stitch some stories and gently disturb the historic textiles you've got sitting in the dark for years at a time. Bye! Bye!